Orpheus and Eurydice. Hymen, the god of the marriage feast, in his robes of saffron, flew from Crete through the measureless sky to the land of the Thracian Cyclones. Orpheus was calling the god to his wedding, though all to no purpose. The god attended, for sure, but the ritual words, the joyful faces and omens of favor were sadly missing. Even the torch in his hand kept sputtering smoke, brought tears to the eyes but never ignited, however strongly he waved it. The outcome was even worse than foreshadowed. The newlywed bride, while taking a stroll through the grass with her brand of attended naiads, suddenly fell down dead with the fangs of a snake in her ankle. When Orpheus, the Thracian bard, had indulged his grief to the full in the air above, he felt he must also appeal to the shades, and there to descend to the river Styx through the Turanian gateway. Making his way through the shadowy tribes and the ghosts of the buried, he came to Persepina, throne beside the love, the lord of the shadows, who rules that dismal domain, and plucking the strings of his lyre, he began. You powers divine of the subterranean kingdom, where all of mortal creation must one day sink to our doom, if you will give me permission to tell you the truth unvarnished by shifty pretenses, I've not come down to explore the murky regions of Tartarus, nor to enchain the tree-headed monster Medusa Boar, the dog whose coat is bristling with adders. I'm here searching of my wife. Cut off in the years of her youth, when a viper she trampled, discharged in venom inside her ankle. I'd hoped to be able to bear my loss and confess that I tried, but love was too strong. That God is well known in the world above, and I wonder whether you know him here. I divine that you do. If rumor has not invented the tale of that old abduction, you too are united by love. In the name of these confines of fear, in the name of this vast abyss in your realm of infinite silence, I, Orpheus, implore you, unravel the web of my dear Eurydice's early passing. We are all destined for you. We may tarry a little, but sooner or later we speed to our own habitation. This is the place that we are all bound for, our final dwelling. In yours is the longest ride that the human race must endure. Eurydice, too, when her due of years have been ripely completed, shall own your sway. Till then, I beg you to let me enjoy her. If fate forbids you to show my wife any mercy, I'll never return from the Hades myself. You may joy in the death of us both. As Orpheus pleaded his cause, enhancing his words with his music, he moved the bloodless, bloodless spirits to tears. For a moment, Tantalus ceased to clutch at the fleeting pool, Ixion's wheel was spellbound, the vultures halted their pecking at Thetheo's liver, the Danaids dropped their urns and Sisyphus sat on his boulder. The furious hearts were assuages by the song, and the story goes that they wept real tears for the very first time. The king and queen of the world below 
forbore to refuse such a moving appeal, and they summoned Eurydice. Leaving the rest of the ghosts who had newly arrived, she slowly trailed along in her rounded ankle. Orpheus was told he could lead her away on one condition, to walk in front and never look back until he had left the Vale of Avernus, or else the concession would count for nothing. In deadly silence, the two of them followed the upward slope. The track was steep, it was dark and shrouded in thick black mist. Not too far to go now. The exit to earth and the light was ahead, but Orpheus was frightened, his love was falling behind. He was desperate to see her. He turned, and at once he sank back into the dark. She stretched out her arms to him, struggled to feel his hands on her own, but all she was able to catch, poor soul, was a wielding air. And now, as she died for the second time, she never complained that her husband had failed her. What, she, what could she complain of, except that he'd love her? She only uttered her last farewell, so faintly he hardly could hear it, and then she was swept once more to the land of the shadows. Robbed of his wife all over again, poor Orpheus was stunned, like the terrified person who once caught sight of the tree-headed hellhound, Cerberus, chained by the middle neck, and whose fear has never left him until his nature had changed and the stone crept over his body. Or poor Lethay, transformed to stone for her bride and beauty, whose husband Alanus took her offense on himself and hoped to not be changed in her place. Two hearts that once were united in love and now are separate rocks in the snowy heights of Mount Ida. Orpheus wanted to cross the sticks for the second time, but his pleas were in vain and the ferryman pushed him away from the bank. So he sat there in rags for a week without eating a morsel of food. His anguish, his grief and his tears were all that kept him alive. Cursing the gods of the dark for their cruel unkindness, he finally took himself back to Rodope's heights and to Winsap Hamus. Three years went by, with the sun god traversing watery pices to mark their ending. Orpheus now would have nothing to do with the love of women, perhaps because of his fortune and love, or he may have plighted his throat forever. But scores of women were burning to sleep with the bard and suffered the pain of rejection. Orpheus even started a practice among the Thracian tribals of turning for love to mature males and of plucking the flower of a boy's brief spring before he has come to manhood.